Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. If you're a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. In this episode, we need to talk to Michael Fosberg. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. A Chicago native, Michael has spoken at nearly a thousand high schools, colleges, government agencies, corporations, law firms, and not-for-profits since 2005, utilizing his award-winning autobiographical story told in the form of a one-man play as an entry point for meaningful dialogues on race and identity. And our regular listeners can probably uh, make an assumption right away as to why we wanted to speak to Michael because of my own background in the world of theater. So, Michael, that's really exciting. Part of the reason why we're really excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I, I, obviously, I was not aware of the connection that we have, but it's good to know. Yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about. Excellent. So in his latest book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, Michael offers readers seven important tools to engage in authentic dialogue. In 2011, he published his memoir, Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. So, Michael, over to you. What do you do and why should anyone keep effing listening to this podcast? (laughs) Well, I, you know, you ask all your guests this, which, you know, is I'm sure they prepare for this as well. And I, I the first thing I have to say is, are we just going to keep using the effing word? Or are we actually going to say the fucking word? I, I, I don't I don't know if anybody's talked about that, but let's just get it right out there first and foremost. Right. Uh, what do I do? Well, the bio kind of says it all, but I will say in a nutshell, I, I'm a storyteller and I use storytelling more specifically um, and to your uh, 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 expertise, Ken, more specifically, I use the performing arts to help organizations and institutions create space for authentic and meaningful conversations about race and identity uh, to foster greater belonging and inclusion. And how did you end up here? Did you start with a, a career in theater and then move towards using your theater profession to enact social change, or was it the other way around? Yes, uh, I did start as a, uh, a theater professional. I've been an actor, writer, director, teacher for many, many years. And then in 2001, actually, I uh, moved back. Well, and actually, 2000, I moved back from California to Chicago, which is my, my home. And I started to write. This, this thing happened to me when I was out in California. And, I, and, and we'll get into that in the course of our conversation. But this thing happened to me in my life a true story, that a, a true journey that I went on. And I was pressed to start to write about it. It was just a, such a, a, a light, it was a life-changing event. It changed my life. And so I started to write about it. And um, I was asked to read some of the chapters from the book I was working on. I put that in air quotes for listeners. Um, and I just read about four or five chapters and people were just knocked out by it. And they were, they said to me, so Ken, they said, you should be performing this. You should be performing this because I'm a performer. That's my natural state of affairs. And I thought, okay, I guess so. And then I did a, a, a another reading um, a couple of months later, some different stories, some of the same stories. I got the same response and I kept saying, you know, I'm writing it. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book. I'm working on an autobiography. 
And uh, they said, no, you should be really performing this. And so that's how it sort of um, took its first flight onto the stage, so to speak. And did it start in the traditional theater world or did you leap right away into um, the non-traditional performance spaces that we mentioned in your biography, uh, you know, corporate boardrooms and in high schools and other locations? No, it started because uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I wasn't really, um, I guess I wasn't really cognizant of, of the, of, I, I will call it the DE&I space, diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I wasn't really cognizant of it back uh, in 2001, 2002, when I first did the show. Um, I started in a theater here in Chicago, um, and then um, I, I moved to a theater in a, in a northern suburb uh, of Highland Park. And then a, a gentleman who was the artistic director of the um, Kansas City Repertory Theater, a very large, reputable, regional theater uh, happened to catch the show and he was knocked out by it. And he invited me to open their season in 20, I think it was not 20 is, yeah, it was 2002. And, uh, I went up, I went to Kansas city and I opened the show there and it would just, it just floored people. They were just absolutely knocked out by it. Um, and then I sort of had these visions of taking it. <laughs> I'm laughing here because this is, you, you may know a little bit about this, Ken. You know, oh, well, you got to go to Broadway, right? You got to go to off-Broadway, more, more specifically for something like this. And so I, I set my sights on trying to take it to New York and to off-Broadway and um, <laughs> was foiled at every turn. Uh, and it, I mean, it's, it's a daunting task to take a show to New York, to Broadway, to off Broadway. I, I keep saying that to off Broadway. It's, it's, it's actually, um, we were quoted a million dollars just to produce a one man play off Broadway. And I was like, you know, where are we going to, where are we going to raise that kind of money? And so I came back uh, to Chicago kind of with my tail between my legs, so to speak. And I was asked to perform the show, um, for a group of, teenagers who were studying uh, an intensive theater training program at Northwestern University. It's called the National High School Institute. It's been around for almost 90 years. They bring about, oh, I don't know, 140 students from high schools all around the country who are between their junior and senior years in high school. They bring them to campus and they have this five-week intensive theater training program. And so I was asked to teach in this program. The irony was I was a student in this program back in the 70s, not to age myself, but uh, so I was asked to teach and to direct. And then the director at the time, the director of the program said, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you do your one, one, one person show. And so I did the show. And, uh, again, I'm, I'm referring to Ken. I'm not, not leaving you out on any of this, Russell. I just know that he has a, that, that's perfectly okay, Michael. Perfectly okay. He has a distinct interest in theater. And so I'm, I'm directing it all towards you. Uh, in any case, I, I, so I did the show, you know, it was like a standing ovation. Incredible. The kids just loved it. And like you do for a, a show for a group of students, um, Afterwards, you might have a, a talk back with the with the students so they could ask you questions about, you know, like, how did you decide on the blocking and how did you decide on the arc of the story and what made you use that character in that place or what, you know, these different questions that relate to the production. But instead of the students asking me questions about the production, they asked me questions about race and identity because that's the genesis of the story. Um, and so I, 
I was sort of taken aback by them. They're asking, you know, you know, well, what race are you now? What box do you check off on applications? Um, why is race important? Why don't we talk about it? Or how can we talk about it? And I realized how resonant this was with young people and, and, and how these are conversations. The, the idea of not just race, but also of identity. Like, who are we? And how do we look at ourselves and how do we look at other people? And they were asking these kinds of questions instead of like, you know, why did you do the lights like that? And why did you have the set like that? And these kinds of questions. And so after we did the Q&A, the students were headed back to the dorm. And uh, I know a large group of students came up to me and approached me and said, you know, would you come and do this in our high school? And I thought, why would I, why would I want to go to your high school and do my play? I, I really couldn't figure it out. And, and then I started thinking about it, like, wouldn't it be interesting to go and do the show at their high schools and then have this conversation with all of the students following the show? Every high school student, fr frankly, everybody is trying to figure out how we fit in. What, who's, who's our tribe? How do we, how do we connect with people? You know, why is it that I look at someone this way or that way or whatever? And so I, I did, I think, about a half a dozen schools, high schools that year. And then the next year, I came back and did the show again at the, at the National High School Institute at Northwestern. And, and I think I booked, you know, I doubled that number. I did a, a dozen shows. And then it just kept growing and growing. And then I, I was asked to do it at a college. And, and I started working in colleges. And, and that's when I started to become aware of the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and how important it was. And so I started to brand, I guess, would be the best word to use, brand what I was doing as a diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging training tool. And so I would go in and over the course of 45 minutes, I would tell my true story about the search to find my biological father. And then I would facilitate following that a discussion about race and identity. And that just kept growing and it kept moving into different markets. I, as I said, I was doing colleges. And then one night I found myself at a business college. Um, and afterwards, there were executives from corporations in the area who approached me and said, you know, would you come and do this for our teams? And I thought, absolutely. I, I would love to have this conversation. And so I started moving into the corporate market. And then somehow I had a connection with a government agency and I wound up doing it for the Social Security Administration. And then I wound up going to Washington, D.C. and doing it for the Treasury Department and for ICE and for the Department of Homeland Security. It just, just kept growing and growing. The markets kept growing. And I kept adding new material, not to the play, but to the dialogue afterwards. And I created a set of tools to help people have more meaningful and authentic conversations. And um, boy, I just kind of went off on a on a tangent there, but that's, that's how that, that was the trajectory. That's how it started. And that's how it sort of took off. Well, that's great to hear, Mike, when it's interesting to see how, you know, you were, that's, that wasn't your intention to end up where you right. ended up. But, uh, um, we say you sort of were told you to fucking talk about that. So you did. <laughs> okay. So, it was, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but that you've, you've, you've hinted to our listeners you know, the, the, the sort of genesis, I suppose, to why you even started thinking about, hey, I could do a book, I could do a play, I could go and talk to anybody and everybody about this important topic. So why don't you tell our listeners how you got to that point in the first place? Yes. Um, and it's been, it's been not, the story arc has been very nicely put set out for the moment to just, just tease <laughs> this with them, that there's something under here that, that's sort of going to be super fucking interesting. What is it? Here we are. So... Uh, Exactly. What was the genesis behind it? 
Yes. Well, for listeners, uh, and again, we are, this is an audio medium um, and they can't see us, but we look like three white guys sitting around talking. I guess that's a, that could be a title for a play. Um, but uh, we're three white guys sitting around talking, but um, that's actually, there's a little bit of a, a, mis, uh, a mistruth in that. And so my story um, was that I was raised in a working class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, a little town called Waukegan, Illinois. And I was raised by my biological mother, who was of Armenian descent, and a um, stepfather who was of Swedish descent. Um, my mom uh, had left my father. She remarried when I was about five or six years old. And, uh, and then they started to have a family. And so, and that's w- what I was raised in. Um, and so when I was in my early thirties, my parents, I was living out in Los Angeles, trying, <laughs> trying miserably to make it as an actor in Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, my parents, uh, announced that they were getting a divorce after, I don't know, 30 years of marriage or something. And, and to be honest with you, I, I was actually rocked by the announcement, absolutely devastated by it. And, you know, I'm here, I was in my early thirties. Like, I don't know why it affected me so greatly. But at the time, I had a British girlfriend who suggested, well, perhaps it's because you don't know who your biological father is, which was true. I had no idea who my biological father was. I'd never asked my mother any questions. And uh, and I, I guess I was just too afraid as a kid to ask questions about it. And by the time, you know, again, by the time I was four or five years old, um, they, you know, my mom remarried. They had kids. Now I had a dad. I had a brother and a sister. And I just kind of went with the flow. And so here I was early thirties, parents getting a divorce and it just crashed. It came in and hit me like, well, wait a minute. Who's my, who's my biological father? And so, um, my British girlfriend encouraged me to, um, confront my mother and ask her some questions. And so I did. And she gave me two bits of information. She told me his name was John Sidney Woods. And she told me that the last time she had spoken with him, which was some 30 years ago, that he had lived in the Detroit area. She thought she, she wasn't sure. So those are the only pieces of information that I had. So armed with that information, I went to the library in Santa Monica, California, and I went to use a device, an ancient device that we all used to use, Ken's laughing here, called the phone book. You remember these? (laughs) I got a phone book for Detroit (laughs) and I looked up his name. And there were five or six listings and I copied down all the names and all the phone numbers. And I went home and I was living in an apartment about the size of this screen. Literally, I could just take three steps across and two steps back. I was nervous as hell. I just didn't know what to say. What, 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 you know, what would come of any of this? Who knew if I had even the right phone numbers for anybody? And so I finally gathered the courage. I picked up the phone. I dialed the first number on the list. A guy answers the phone. I said, I'm looking for John Sidney Woods. And he says, you're speaking with him. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it can't be that easy, right? I mean, it couldn't be that easy. So I, I had sort of in my mind come up with these additional questions to narrow it down. And I said, um, I, I said, uh, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? Because that is where my mother indeed lived um, in 1957. And And uh, he paused and he said, yes, I did. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, this is too easy. And I said, were you married to a woman by the name of Adrian Pilibosian? 
And he paused again, which seemed like an hour to me. (laughs) And he said, yes, I was. And I realized I'd tracked my father down in a first phone call. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And I was just, I, I was so nervous and so ecstatic at the same time. I just kind of blurted out, my name is Michael Fosberg and I'm your son. And, and then there was this moment of like, what do we say? What do we do? How do we talk to one another? What, you know, 30 years have gone by and we've not seen one another or spoken with one another. And, uh, and then we, you know, sort of shared with one another some things, some little bits of information. And then out of the blue, he says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I thought, okay, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else, what else could there be? Right. And he says, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. And I got to tell you, I mean, just telling you this now, I mean, it's just really, it just really rocked me. I was, I never heard my biological father tell me that he loved me. And, and here I was meeting him for the first time and he's saying this. And then he said, there's, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. Now I grew up in a working class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, thinking I was a white guy. And suddenly, I'm a lot more than that. And then he proceeded to tell me about my family history, that my great-great-grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry in the Civil War, that my my great-grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. He pitched for the St. Louis Stars. And that my grandparents were still alive and living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And my grandfather was a genius and the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University is named after him. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part and you're giving me all this history. And, uh, and so that's, that's how I met my father for the first time. And, um, and then it was a couple of weeks after that, that I got a phone call waking me up in the morning. My grandmother called me to introduce herself to me and, Um, And so I tell this story, portraying all these characters, my mother, my sister, my father, my grandparents, and, and I portray all these characters over about 45 minutes. And then at the end of the play, I confront the audience about, well, who am I? How do you see me now? What, what box should I check off when I, when I fill out applications? And so I confront them with these questions about race and identity and uh, and then I, I close out the play. And uh, as I said, I, I then facilitate a conversation with the audience, unpacking all of the different issues that the play brings up. I, well, I, I think fucking hell is like the first thing I heard about when I listened to that, if I'm honest. Um, just just because on, on several levels, one of the sort of a bit of a showstopper, I'm sure, you know, I think our listeners could probably imagine if we were suddenly, you know, oh, okay, um, that could change everything I thought I knew about myself and now that's all changed. And, and also the, the, the ability that you, the first person that you happen to phone, the, the, uh, the, the, the chances that there would be, that person would be your father is, 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 quite, is quite, a, quite amazing. Um, the, it, it, the story resonates me, with me because my, my nephew is mixed race. He's, his mother is white, his father is black. And so the, for him, there's always been a piece around, well, 
well, who am I? Am I am I black? Am I white? And people saying, well, you're not really white, or you're not really black enough. And well, what does that mean? And where do I fit in? Um, and you know, so, so when you were talking about that, I was I was thinking of him. I mean, you know, he, he, he just thought, okay, now that's a that's a challenging thing to think about. Of as you said right at the beginning, of where do I fit in in life, and how and, and how does that where's my place and what box do I check and is there is there another box and does that really adequately explain me so you know uh, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that that sort of identity piece and how I'm feeling and maybe some of the conversations you've had with people about that um, sure sure yeah well I think you know I, I so I speak to a lot of mixed race people and that uh, mixed race is actually the largest growing population in the United States um, these days on the census forms um, and a lot of, especially young people who are mixed race struggle with that quite, quite a bit. Like, where do I fit in? I mean, one day I fit in with my white friends and another day I don't fit in with them. One day I fit in with my black friends. I don't. And then another day I don't fit in with, you know, where do I fit and how does this all work? Um, I think it's okay to know that it will constantly be changing. I think that's the, the piece of advice that I give parents and mixed race kids is that, know that it, it's okay for you to feel different from day to day. It's all right. And as you get older, um, you will, you will find a space, whatever that might be, a, you know, a solid biracial space or a solid white space or, or black space, whatever that might be, where you feel is the, is the crux of your identity of who you are. But I also say this about everybody. And that is, that our identities are fluid to some degree that, that, um, you know, there, even in, a, in an immediate family, a mother, a father, a son, and a daughter, each person sees themselves slightly differently. Yes. They all may share certain traits, certain ideas, certain beliefs, certain, um, behaviors, but each person will see themselves as slightly differently. So I think it's important to remember that. And also that our identities change over the course of our lives. And yet we don't actually talk about that a lot. Um, in other words, okay, you, you, you get out of a high school, you go to college, um, you start to study something in college. And so suddenly you have this interest that you sort of see yourself in, whether it's maybe you start studying medicine or you start studying the law or engineering or something like that. You get out of college, you graduate, maybe you go in, you, you become a lawyer and now you see yourself. That's a part of your identity. You become a lawyer. It's part of your identity. Then maybe, um, you get married and now you see yourself as a, a, as a spouse, a husband or a wife or whatever it might be. And then, um, that's a part of your identity. And then perhaps you have children. Now you're a parent and that changes your identity and that's a part of your identity. And then maybe your kids have kids and then you suddenly see yourself as a grandparent. So these are simplistic things, but these are things that we, most of us all experience over the course of our lives. And it shows that our identities are constantly evolving and changing. And yet we don't always share a lot of it. Sure. We share, you know, I've got kids, I've got grandkids, but I don't know how much of that's a real part of who I am now. Do I share that with other people? And so um, just like biracial people have this place that is um, unique to them, everybody has a, a unique journey with, with identity. And I think that's one of the things I try to talk about um, you know, during the facilitated dialogue with, with, with corporations and organizations. And when you talk with leaders in the business world and in corporations, what do you find is the biggest challenge that they face in talking about race uh, or in um, uh, 
in addressing race and how it's changing role in our society is impacting the workplace? <laughs> well, I would say, Ken, that uh, it's a cha- I'd, I'd just say it's a challenge for everyone. It's a challenge for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're in a corporation or you're in a, I don't know, a book group or, (laughs) I mean, to have a conversation about race and identity is a difficult conversation. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I know one of the things you, you talk about with your guests is, you know, tell us about a, a, an uncomfortable conversation you have. Well, one of the tools in my tool, I, I, I leave groups with a set of seven tools to help them have more authentic, meaningful conversations about race and identity. And one of the tools, the, uh, the fifth tool in my tool card is get comfortable being uncomfortable. I mean, I, I know that that's probably been reinforced back and forth all across all different uh, uh, disciplines and fields and all, all over the place. And it's not something new. It's not something that I, you know, just invented, but get comfortable being uncomfortable. I, and I know that also that people think that's kind of crazy. Why would I want to get comfortable being uncomfortable? That seems nuts. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're uncomfortable probably Every day of our lives, there's a moment in our li- in every day when we probably experience something that makes us uncomfortable. I mean, whether it's, I don't know, you get up in the morning and you have an ache in your back and you're like, oh man, you know, uh, or, or maybe, um, uh, you, you know, you spill your coffee when you're, you know, you're, you're making it or you're, or you're on your way to work and you get a, a ticket or you get to work and you have an argument with a coworker, with your boss or whatever. I mean, there's a moment in each of our days in which we feel uncomfortable. And yet we work through that. We're able to work through that moment. So my point is, we can work through that in this conversation as well. We just have to accept that there will be uncomfortable moments um, and we'll work through them. I, I, I was having this conversation. Um, <laughs> I do have a podcast um, called Incognito the Podcast. And m- the genesis of the podcast is talking to a variety of people about ways in which they build inclusivity or bring people together so that they feel belonging in their workspace or community or whatever. And one of the things I was talking about with a guest recently was he experienced a very uncomfortable moment um, uh, interviewing a couple of people for a, an, art, an art project he was working on. He's a photographer. And, um, and in that moment, um, he asked, he, he sensed something was wrong and he asked the people, I feel like there's something that just changed in the room with us. And I'm, I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing that. And the woman of the couple, um, explained to him what was going on and he, he'd never seen it from that or, or heard it from that perspective before. And he realized that yes, indeed, that could seem, that wasn't my intention, but that could seem hurtful or painful. And so first was having the awareness of acknowledging that something was said, that something happened that changed the tenor of the room. Next was owning up to it and accepting it and then apologizing for it. And so I think these are things that I'm trying to advocate in the work and and in particular and in work or the communities and and in particular, you know, this idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, Ken, but (laughs) that's what I got. Well, I think that's a great point you make there, Michael, because I, you know, we, we've talked about that in our work in terms of having you know, difficult conversations, and they can be on any number of, of topics in the workplace around people's behavior or their performance or attendance, you know, what's under the reasons underlying that. And I think that point with the conversations you're talking about, 
that, yeah, we have to, if we really want to have something that's in import, an important conversation, we have to be aware that it might be uncomfortable and that we might inadvertently say something that somebody else doesn't like and we have to be able to accept that something might be said to us that we didn't like and we can have a mature exchange of, of ideas if we're accepting that we're doing it genuinely wanting to reach a better place, if I put it that way. Yes. Um, and if we don't and we just, one, either avoid the conversation or immediately look to say, aha, you just, I've got you, you said this or you did this, and then the whole thing shuts down. So I could certainly see the, you know, that being uh, important, that we will got to say this might be uncomfortable for everybody here to varying degrees, but we still need to have that conversation and, and have that dialogue. Otherwise, we're still going to be stuck in the same position forever. It's never, it's never going to change. So uh, great, great point. So I think at this point, we're going to take a short intermission. Um, when we come back after our advert break, we're going to hear about the most difficult workplace conversation of all the difficult conversations you've had, Michael, and how you dealt with it. So we'll be back in a flash. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen who's Operations Manager at Volker Stevan Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Stevan has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information. We know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. Agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc. are going to take place. And what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker Steven and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk To You podcast. We're speaking today with Michael Fosberg. Michael's work with groups such as the Boeing Company, United Way Worldwide, PNC Financial Services, Procter & Gamble, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, and his work is reshaping the way organizations talk about race, identity, and diversity. Michael has just launched a series of unique virtual e-learning programs utilizing his award-winning play as the entry point for delving into uncomfortable conversations. So let's take a look at the most difficult workplace conversation you've had to conduct, Michael. Could be with an employee, coworker, customer, even your boss. Uh, talk us through what happened. Picking one. Well, let's see. I I did a 
a presentation for, I guess I can say this company, um, PBS. Yikes. I said it. Um, uh, public broadcasting system. Uh, and I was at their corporate offices and we did a, a, a session where I did the play and uh, a facilitated conversation. It was really great. We had um, some really engaging conversation afterwards. Um, uh, there were lots of, uh, I guess I would say tough questions, but when I say tough questions, I mean, people are really provoked in the show to think about the ways in which we not only see ourselves and others, but the way that we view, um, uh, I guess I would say entertainment or, or we, we, the, the way we consume and view entertainment. So, um, the play is a form of entertainment. It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a performance. And in the play, um, I portray, as I said, over a dozen different characters. Some of them are black and some of them are white. And for some people, um, sometimes they are perceiving some of the characters, um, uh, uh, stereotypical of, 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 uh, mostly the, the, the black characters that I portray, um, which brings up a whole slew of different questions. Um, I generally now open the facilitated portion of a conversation, um, after the play, um, asking the audience a question before I ask them to give me questions, to feed me questions. And the first question I ask them is, um, could I see a show of hands of the people in the room who felt that the black characters were stereotypes? And oftentimes it will be a, a pretty large portion of the audience will raise their hands. And then I'll say, um, great, put your hands down. Um, now can I see by a show of hands, how many people felt that the white characters were stereotypes and generally a very small fraction of the audience raises their hands. And I, I say, you know, isn't that interesting? Why is it that you think that we see um, black characters more stereotypically than we see white characters? And, and, and what are stereotypes? Stereotypes are thoughts, beliefs, and attributes about a group of people without uh, considering individual differences. And so we all have stereotypes that apply to us. You know, what all of the different categories we might be in, male, female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, young, old, um, whatever. There's a wide variety of characters, uh, of categories. And, and in those categories, there are stereotypes that apply to people that we, we got them from those categories. And some of those apply to us, but not all of those apply to us. But what happens is, the nature of our sort of pre-programmed um, judgments is that we apply all of those things stick to us. So you're an older white gentleman, all of those stereotypes from those categories are suddenly stuck to you, even though maybe only a fraction of each of those categories are really true for us. And so in judging the stereotypes, we, we, we judge things in that way. I, I oftentimes will use my grandmother as an example. I play my black grandmother, my 85-year-old black grandmother. And um, 
you know, the, one of the things I point out to people is that they look, many people have probably not even had any real experience with someone like this, an 85 year old black woman. And so you're judging it based on your own um, thoughts or beliefs about there. Where do you get them from? From television, from movies, from books, from the newspaper, from the news. All of these different sources feed into the way in which we judge those people, those characters. Um, and the interesting thing is in my in my show, you're probably seeing literally less than a minute of my grandmother. And so you're judging her based on some sort of pre-programmed thing that you're going through. The other thing I point out is that, you know, like, why would I stereotype my family? That would be really offensive. I mean, that that's offensive. So so there's that issue. And then finally, I point out that um, I'm, I'm I'm I look white. And I'm playing black characters. We rarely see that unless, you know, people saw Tropic Thunder, which is a whole completely different experience of <laughs> blackness. But but so so if my skin had been darker and playing those characters, people may have judged it quite a bit differently. And so I point those kinds of things out now after the play. And we're able to have we're able to unpack that conversation and uh, and sort of see about the ways in which we carry unconscious biases. Where do we get them? How do we become aware of them? Well, perhaps we become aware of them because a guy like me comes in and does a play that confronts them with something that they you know thought and they didn't really think through it in terms of how they went about judging that. Um, this isn't even the most difficult part of this. <laughs> what happened was. Um, Actually, it didn't happen in the session itself. I left the session. You know, we had broken all this stuff down. Everything went well. The director, the diversity director, calls me late at night. Something had happened. There was a woman in the audience, a worker, an employee, who took great offense um, to a word that I used during the play. Um, in the end of the play... I confront the audience with um, a, a question, um, what box should I check off on applications? And I go through a litany of boxes, white, Caucasian, African-American, mixed, biracial, multiracial, mulatto, octoroon, high yellow. Um, some of these are actual real boxes that were on the census and some like high yellow is a made up box for me to sort of put it in your face. Like, where do we, where do we stop? Where do we start? How do we go about doing this? Mulatto was a real box on the census in the United States. Well, the woman, when she heard it, the word mulatto was unbelievably offended. She was a mixed race, uh, I believe Puerto Rican woman who said that the word mulatto was as offensive as the N-word. So the diversity director and I are having this conversation on the phone. She's a black woman, and she says to me, I'd never heard that before. I mean, I'd never, and I, I'd never either. Plus the fact that it was an actual box on the census form. And that's the point I'm trying to make. So obviously something got in this woman and she was just deeply, deeply offended by this. And so one of the things I had to do another show the next morning at a different location and the diversity director was asking me, 
if I could cut that word because she was afraid that we'd have another reaction. She didn't, she didn't think it might happen, but she wanted to avoid it. And I said, I have to tell you, I'm very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> I mean, this is censorship. And um, I don't think I'm saying anything that needs to be censored, A. And B, I don't feel comfortable doing that. However, you are the client and I will accede to whatever it is you feel best. She also agreed that it was censorship and she did not like the idea of doing that. Um, but she was kind of in a quandary. And what I suggested was that she needed to have a conversation with this woman, obviously. The woman had you know, um, sent off an email to everyone in the company and just uh, she was irate and all of this. And so... Um, Eventually, what ended up happening was I did the show the next day. I didn't cut the word. I put a, I added a little disclaimer by saying something to the effect of "or this word," which was once used in the sen- in the um, uh, 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 census, uh, and and you know we had no problems and everything was fine. And she did indeed have a conversation with this woman. I don't actually know the outcome of that, but just to have the conversation about it is what's so important. Um, One of of the, another one of the tools, which is a part of this whole conversation, which I think is, uh, and I, I actually talked with the diversity director about this is that we have to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. Like if there was one way to do it, we'd all be doing it. That would make it a lot easier. If it was A plus B equals C, when we got to the place where we said, okay, we're going to have that conversation about race now, we'd go, oh yeah, I know the formula. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's have it. But there is no formula because we all come to the table with a different experience of race, with different experience of identity. And, and so that's what makes it messy and that's where the other tool comes in that we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so even though this woman had that, you know, that experience that she was offended, that doesn't mean another woman who has a similar background to her would find it equally as offensive. And so, but we need to acknowledge each person, but also try to help them work through it. And so um, I think that's what happened in that case. I had another, you know, I've had lots of similar cases. I I actually pointed this out to the diversity director where in the play, my father, (laughs) when my father and I, my biological father and I meet for the first time, it's this shocking moment because I look exactly like my father, like my biological father. I'm just a shade lighter than he is. And so when we first meet, my biological father says the words, Jesus Christ, like, like shock, like, oh my God. Well, I've had this happen twice. I had someone in the audience who was a deeply devout Christian who came up to me afterwards and said that I was saying the Lord's name in vain and that I should take it out of the play. And, you know, I said, look, I completely respect your faith and your um, opinion about this, but I got to tell you, I bet you there's some other devote Christians who are in the audience today. And no one's coming up to me to tell me to take it out of the play. 
And if I took every board out that offended every person, there wouldn't be much of a play left. <laughs> right, Ken? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that 45-minute play would actually be like a five-minute play. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it, it resonates with what you were saying because we had um, the uh, director for the Centre for Newcomers here in Calgary on our podcast uh, a few episodes ago, and yeah. she was talking a very similar situation um, around the DEI uh, session, I think it was a, certainly a consultant. They worked with a lot, very um, experienced in the, in the field, and was doing some research in with their client base, which were basically people who were, you know, um, new to new to Calgary, new to Canada, um, yeah. and specifically different groups. And I think the group, if I remember rightly, was to do with group from the LGBT community. I think, but also there was a. Um, uh, a racial dimension as well because they were from other countries, other ethnicities. And what he was doing was reporting back to their group in their organization um, from a from focus groups. And he was quoting specific things that people had said in the focus group. And somebody very similar to what you've said raised a complaint that they were offended by the terminology that he'd used. And he was completely shocked. was like, well, I wasn't going to offend anybody, but... I'm just telling you what people said. This is these are the actual words because what they wanted to say. How do people feel? What they didn't want to do was take people's words, like sanitize it, and say it's because they want to know what was actually there out on the ground. So they had a similar sort of conversation that you're talking about, where she was sort of saying, "Well, I get that you're offended by this, but this is the actual words that the person said. He hasn't made it up." Yeah. You know, in the same way that you were talking about you know, the, what was actually on the census or the conversation with your father, what he actually said, which if you take that out, the impact of the story, if he just said, oh, golly, or something like that, well, that's not what he said, and it doesn't have the same impact. So the importance of understanding and being aware of people's sensitivities, but also if things are these are factually what happened or what was said or what was done, to take that out can completely change the, the, the tone of where we're going and would be a disservice to us rather than a, than a help. Indeed. And it's often something that happens in the world, in any kind of entertainment, whether it's theater or films, the notion that we conflate the actor who is performing the words with the character who is saying the words. And yeah. we often, and this happens in a variety of different ways, Like, but on film, we see someone like Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained, who plays like this incredibly racist character, but we don't think of Leonardo DiCaprio as himself personally a racist. Right. But there's something weird that happens in the world of theater. When someone like says something like Jesus Christ, we think that that, that the, the actor, the person, the playwright is himself taking the Lord's name in vain instead of seeing through the frame into like the world of the character and you're reporting on the experience. There's something funny that happens with the immediacy of theater. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It is a little more complicated uh, in my show in that I play myself. <laughs> At, for, at certain moments. And so, um, uh, actually, you know, people have asked me about that. Um, but at that moment when I'm using, um, well, certainly the Jesus Christ quote was, I, I was actually portraying my father saying that later when I talk about uh, mulatto, I am the narrator saying that to the audience. And so therefore, um, who is that? What is that? You know, how we perceive that, um, yeah, 
Yeah. I have a one-man show that's somewhat similar. I wrote a play called My Morocco in which I play myself traveling through Morocco. Ah. And in the, in the course of that play, I while I'm traveling through Morocco, I discover my sister has passed away back in Canada. So mm. I'm struggling with grief while moving through this foreign country, which is quite a difficult country to travel through if you have not traveled in North Africa before. Yes. So the 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 narrator, me, Ken Cameron, is struggling through the, all of these different kind of complications. And there are elements of, um, of, uh, of, of white privilege that come out through the story. Now, in writing this play, I take my, the, the experiences that happened to me and I exaggerate them. Yes. And, or I take the emotions that are happening to me and I heighten them. So yes. by extension, I take the difficulties that I, as a privileged Westerner traveling through North Africa and the challenges I'm facing with, you know, everything from the food to the, to the, to the toilets, to the lack of alcohol, to the, uh, because it's a Muslim country, to, to all of those different kinds of things, which are, which are in essence, like the, um, the, the, the systemic racism that comes from what we now call white privilege, but wasn't at the time that I wrote the play. So all of that is heightened and exaggerated. So there's a slight difference between like the real Ken Cameron and the Ken Cameron that is speaking to you as the narrator because the Ken Cameron that is the narrator is a, is is like not aware of his own self-privilege in the way that the Ken Cameron the actor who is playing the Ken Cameron the narrator is aware of his privilege and has written that into the play so that we can have a dialogue about that at yeah. the end of the play Yes. But it's really also easy for, and I have the same similarities. I have the same challenge of somebody coming up to me and saying, listen, if you don't like our toilets, don't travel to our country. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, the whole point was about, you know, um, uh, you know, the, and the, the whole point of that moment was as much about emotional constipation as it was about the constipation that comes with travel, but which eluded this particular individual because he got caught up in the, um, the, uh, really apparent um, privilege that the character was speaking. So he, he uh, it was, a, it was the, it, it was a moment where it was challenging for the viewer um, to kind of see all those many layers because of their own uh, triggered reaction to um, the way that they were seeing their culture um, inferred by somebody who wasn't seeing it properly. Right. So it, it's complicated when you're trying to portray a character that is on a journey of learn of discovery, on the journey of self awareness. When you're playing a kid who's uh, not self-aware, it's really challenging to communicate that to an audience in a way that you just have to accept the fact that you're going to get that blowback sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually encapsulated it uh, uh, pretty well in terms of the the heightenedness of the character of the dialogue of the reactions that takes place when you're on, when you're on stage, which is different than you personally as a person. The other thing going on here is that I'm also doing this in spaces that are non-traditional theater spaces. You know, I'm walking into a corporation, I'm doing it in their meeting room, in their conference room, or I'm doing it in a hotel ballroom, or I'm doing it you know, in a little tiny space, an office space somewhere. And so, and I'm also performing for people who are, um, I, I, I don't, I don't want this to sound, um, derogatory or negative, but people who are not perhaps as savvy a theater goer as others might be, they have for, for many of them, they've never seen a one person show before. And so, um, it's the first time seeing this and seeing someone play it, you know, a dozen different characters. It's just like, Whoa, wait a minute. What's what, what's, you know? And so it's very, um, um, jarring. And so both of those things are going on, um, in addition to 
all of the other layers that, you know, Russell, we were talking about in terms of stereotypes and judgments and all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a very multi-layered uh, situation. So, well, I'm still struggling with the multiple Ken Camerons actually at the moment from Ken's story. This is like multiple Ken Camerons that you can be worried about. Um, I think we'll, uh, we, before we close out, we always like to ask our guests, is there something that you're working on people don't know about yet but you think that they should fucking care about? Yeah. And if so, what is it? Yeah, well, they should fucking care about what we've been talking about for the last almost hour. Seriously, I mean, the, the, I don't look in in America, and I know this isn't going on in Canada. Well, I don't actually know that, but I know what's going on in America, and what's going on in America is there's a, an enormous pushback on on uh, diversity inclusion efforts, diversity equity inclusion efforts. I can't currently work in the state of Texas or Florida. It's been banned essentially in both those states. Um, uh, there's an enormous pushback on uh, CRT, which is basically their idea that we're pushing some sort of false history about black history or whatever. And so there's pushback on that. There's book bans going on all over the place. I mean, people should care about these things. This is it's unconscionable what's happening in terms of stifling um, um, real history, real people, you know, so that's. That's one issue I would say, but other things I personally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on a podcast, as I mentioned earlier, incognito, the podcast in which I'm really um, committed to helping people get more tools in their workspace. And so each of the guests offers the ways in which they create a, a, a space of inclusivity and how they make people, people feel like they belong. And so they're offering tools each week in the, in the conversations I have with them, um, and I'm also doing work, uh, now I've started doing work in churches, actually. Um, the work that I do, even though <laughs> for years and years I've branded it as DE&I, the message, and as we've discussed today, the message is a much bigger message than just DE&I. It's really about humanity, about who we are. And I think um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak again uh, being down here in Chicago, uh, I don't know exactly what the word Canada, if the word Canada has a meaning to it, but in here, it's called the United States of America. I'm working on the united part because that part is broken here right now. And I'm trying to bring that back and trying to figure out, look, we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. It's a thing in academic circles that's known as intergroup contact theory. It's the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. And so by telling my story, Ken, by you telling your story, people open up. And then they start to tell their stories. Russell, you got a story, I'm sure. And you could be telling your story and connecting people. And you are through this podcast. So those are the things I'm, ad, ad, I'm adamant about and excited about and energized about. And I think people should fucking care about. Well, I think that's an excellent place for us to stop, Michael. Thank you. That's a message for everybody to take away. I know that Ken and I have greatly enjoyed our conversation. Um, I hope you've enjoyed being with us and our listeners have enjoyed uh, listening to you. Um, thank you for your time. Indeed. Thank you, guys, both. 
And we're going to put into the show notes uh, some information on your podcast, and we'll put in there also um, some information on how people can get a hold of you. If the if individuals wanted to book you for their workplace or their school, they could reach out to you through their website. I, I assume. I see you nodding. So yeah. great, excellent. We'll do that. Yeah. And can they also access your uh, e-learning tools from that website as well? They can find out information there. They can buy books there. All all of that is available on the website. Incognito the plate. Yeah. Thank you. We'll put that into the show notes. Okay. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh, please subscribe, uh, forward this to your colleagues and co-workers so they can join in, and we will fucking talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.